0: Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for, 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit, 20% off gifts to celebrate the season, and 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC in stores and online now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly.
1: This is the American Veteran Show. I'm proud
0: to finally say
2: these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset.
1: Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews, highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women
2: who served their country in uniform. Less than 1% population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them.
1: Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs.
3: Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you, as always, for joining us. A terrific program coming up over the next hour. We will talk about the Medal of Honor recipients. We will, again, focus on World War II veterans as we dedicate this program to not only Woody Williams, but the last living member of Easy Company. You know, the Band of Brothers. We'll talk about that straight ahead. And we wrap up the program with a look at arguably one of the Most successful and most popular television series movie stars, or in this case, on the small screen. He also did some stuff on the big screen as well. But did you know the history as to the military career of James Arness or... Matt Dillon for those of you Gunsmoke fans. So we'll have all of that straight ahead here this week on the American Veteran Show. We couldn't do programs like this without our presenting sponsor Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. Their website, b o e s e n bosonlaw.com or 303-999-9999. Let's begin from last week at the White House.
4: President Biden awarded the Medal of Honor the nation's highest honor for valor to four men for their service in the Vietnam War. CBS's David Martin reports.
2: The Vietnam War seems long ago and far away, but it was front and center at the White House today. We're upgrading the awards of four soldiers who perform acts of incredible heroism during the Vietnam conflict. Retired Green Beret John Duffy was the lone American fighting alongside badly outnumbered South Vietnamese troops. We were given orders to fight to the death. He kept the North Vietnamese at bay calling in American airstrikes despite being wounded. They wanted to medically evacuate me, but I refused because I was the only American up there. They could not have held without American air. Edward Kaneshiro didn't make it back from Vietnam, so his son John received the medal for actions in the face of an enemy ambush. He ordered his men to take cover, and then he advanced alone toward the enemy position armed with six grenades in his M-16. Dennis Fujii went into Laos to rescue South Vietnamese troops. He summed up 17 hours of combat with one of the great understatements of the war. I like my job. I like to help other people who need help out there. Dwight Birdwell emerged from this tank wounded but alive to fight off a Viet Cong attack. He was ordered to load onto the medevac helicopter. He complied. This I find amazing, only to crawl right back off the other side and to keep on fighting. That's what it takes to earn the nation's highest honor. I didn't want to die, but I wanted to do my job, and that was more important. If I didn't do this, everybody was going to
3: perish. David Martin, CBS News, the Pentagon. Coming up, the rest of this segment and next, a profile on each of the men who received the Medal of Honor last
5: week. The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, has posthumously awarded, in the name of Congress, the Medal of Honor to Staff Sergeant Edward N. Canashiro, United States Army, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Staff Sergeant Edward N. Canashiro distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving as an infantry squad leader with Troop C, 1st Squadron, 9th Cavalry, 1st Cavalry Division near Fahu, to Kim Song Valley, Republic of Vietnam on 1 December 1966. Not knowing that the village was heavily fortified with a fully bunkered and concealed trench system and garrisoned by the North Vietnamese troops and vastly superior forces, two squads of the platoon had deployed to its center, while Staff Sergeant Kaneshiro and his squad scouted the more than open terrain to the east of the village. Sensing the opportunity to ambush the infantry squads, the entrenched enemy force erupted with machine gun f- and small arms fire against the two squads at the center of the village, killing the platoon leader and the point man, wounding four others, then successfully suppressing the surviving soldiers. Staff Sergeant Kanoshiro moved with his men to the sounds of the fire, swiftly reading the situation, seeing that the fire from the trench had to be stopped if anyone was to survive. He first deployed his men to cover, then crawled forward to attack the enemy force alone. He began by throwing grenades from the parapet while flattened to the ground, successfully throwing the first grenade through the aperture of the bunker, eliminating the machine gunner who had opened the action. With five grenades remaining and his rifle to sustain the assault, Staff Sergeant Kanashiro jumped into the trench to sweep its length where it fronted the two pinned squads. Over the distance of about 35 meters, he worked the ditch alone, destroying one enemy group with rifle fire and two others with grenades. By the end of his sweep, the able-bodied survivors of the two squads were again standing and preparing to move the dead and wounded. Staff Sergeant Kaneshiro's actions enabled the orderly extrication and reorganization of the platoon, which ultimately led to a successful withdrawal from the village. Staff Sergeant Kaneshiro's conspicuous gallantry and uncommon heroism under fire are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Signed, Joseph R. Biden, the President of the United States. President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3, 1863, has awarded in the name of Congress the Medal of Honor to Specialist 5 Dwight W. Birdwell, United States Army, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his own life above and beyond the call of duty. Specialist 5 Dwight W. Birdwell distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving with C Troop. 3rd Squadron, 4th Cavalry, 25th Infantry Division, and in the Republic of Vietnam on 31 January 1968. On this date, C Troop was ordered to move south to help repel an enemy attack on Thun Sun Air Base. As the C Troop column of tanks and armored personnel carriers approached the west gate of Thun Air Base, it became under intense enemy fire from a building at, to, at its right. Unbeknown to C Troop, It had driven directly into an enemy force consisting of three battalions. The column tried to push through the initial attack, but the lead tank, crippled by rocket-propelled grenade explosions, was blocking the way forward. C-Troop immediately came under heavy enemy fire from both sides of the road. Specialist 5 Birdwell, upon seeing that his tank commander was wounded by enemy fire, immediately went to his aid. Under intense enemy fire, he lowered the injured tank commander to the ground and moved him to safety. Specialist 5 Birdwell then, with complete disregard for his own safety, mounted the tank and assumed the tank commander's position. Standing in the tank commander's hatch, with the upper half of his body exposed to heavy enemy fire, Specialist 5 Birdwell used the enemy tank's 50-caliber machine gun and 90-millimeter main gun to suppress the enemy attack. With ammunition for the 90-millimeter main gun exhausted, he continued to fire the 50-caliber machine gun until it overheated. At this point, Specialist 5 Birdwell rather than abandoning his position, continued to engage the enemy with his M16 rifle, sometimes exposing his entire body to fire uh, in order to engage the enemy from a better vantage point. When When a US helicopter crashed nearby, Specialist 5 Birdwell, under withering enemy fire, dismounted and moved to the helicopter where he retrieved two M60 machine guns and ammunition. After giving one M60 and ammunition to a fellow soldier, He remounted his tank and used the other M60 to again engage the enemy. Specialist 5 Birdwell continued to engage the enemy with complete disregard for his own safety until the M60 he was firing was hit by enemy fire. Specialist 5 Birdwell, now wounded in the face, neck, chest, and arms, dismounted the tank but refused to be medically evacuated. Instead, Specialist 5 Birdwell, under enemy fire, rallied fellow soldiers to advance toward the front of the armored column where they set up a defensive position by a large tree. From this position, he and the other soldiers engaged the enemy with M16 fire and grenades. As the enemy fire lessened, Specialist 5 Birdwell gathered ammunition from disabled vehicles and helped wounded soldiers move to safer positions. His leadership and tenacity under fire inspired the other C troop soldiers to continue fighting against the superior enemy force and directly contributed to the enemy's ultimate defeat specialist five birdwells extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself his unit and the United States army signed joseph r biden the president of the United States
3: Two of the four citations as medals were upgraded from these incredible American heroes who served in the Vietnam War. And while maybe it's a little dry to simply hear, I hope and I know because you're listening to this program that you have the utmost respect for what these men did. We'll have the following two men who received their Medal of Honor. Uh, citations as well as our nation's top military honor that comes up next glad you're with us this is the american veteran show americanveteranshow.com now back to the american veteran show here's stephan tubbs so glad you're with us and appreciative of your time this is the american veteran show as we continue a great show underway Toward the end of the program, stick with us, especially if you are a fan of the TV series Gunsmoke. Did you know the history of actor James Arness and his service to our country? We'll end the program with that. But meantime, we continue. Last week, four men, one posthumously, were awarded the Medal of Honor. And it was a ceremony that they will never obviously forget we continue now with the citations from the white
5: house the president of the united states of america authorized by act of congress march 3rd 1863 has awarded in the name of congress the medal of honor to specialist 5 dennis m Fujii, united states army for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his own life and above and beyond the call of duty Specialist 5, Dennis M. Fuji distinguished himself by conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity beyond the call of duty while serving as crew chief aboard a helicopter ambulance during the rescue operations in Laos, Republic of Vietnam, during the period of 18 to 22 February 1971. Specialist 5, Fuji was serving with the 237th Medical Detachment, 61st Medical Battalion, 67th Medical Group. The team's mission was to evacuate seriously wounded Vietnamese military personnel from the midst of a raging battlefield. The aircraft's primary approach, the bullet-infested landing zone, was thwarted by heavy volumes of enemy fire directed at the specialist's helicopter. As the pilot made a second landing attempt, the enemy concentrated a barrage of flak at the air ambulance, which damaged the craft and caused it to crash in the conflict area, injuring Specialist 5HUJIYI. Moments later, another American helicopter successfully landed near the wreckage of the Specialist Airship and extracted all the downed crewmen except for Specialist 5 Ujiyi, who was unable to board the helicopter due to intense enemy fire directed at him. Rather than further endanger the lives of his comrades aboard the second helicopter, Specialist 5 Ujiyi waved the craft out of the combat area and remained behind as the only American on the battlefield. Subsequent attempts to rescue the specialist were aborted due to the violent anti-aircraft fire. Specialist Fai Fuji finally secured a radio and informed the aviators in the area that the landing zone was too hot for further evacuation attempts. During the night and all through the next day, Specialist Fai Fuji disregarded his own wounds as he administered first aid to the Allied casualties. On the night of 19 February, The Allied perimeter came under ruthless assault by a reinforced enemy regiment supported by heavy artillery. Once again obtaining a radio transmitter, Specialist Five Fujii called in American helicopter gunships to assist the small unit in repelling the attack. For a period of over 17 consecutive hours, Specialist Five Fujii repeatedly exposed himself to hostile fire as he left the security of his entrenchment to better observe enemy troop positions and to direct airstrikes against them at times the fighting became so vicious that specialist 5 Fujihi Fuji, was forced to interrupt radio transmissions in, in order to place suppressive rifle fire on the enemy while at close quarters though wounded and severely fatigued by 20 February the specialist bore the responsibility of, for the protection and defense of the enemy excuse me the friendly encampment until an american helicopter could land and attempt to airlift him from the area as his air ambulance left the battlefield it received numerous hits and was forced to crash land at another South Vietnamese ranger base, approximately four kilometers from the specialist's original location. The totally exhausted Specialist 5 Fuji remained at the Allied camp for two more days until yet another helicopter could return him to Phao Bay for medical assistance on 22 February. Specialist 5 Fuji's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty were in the keeping of the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Signed, Joseph R. Biden, the President of the United States. The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress March 3, 1863, has awarded in the name of Congress the Medal of Honor to Major John Day J. Duffy, United States Army, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his own life above and beyond the call of duty. Major John J. Duffy distinguished himself by acts of gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving as the senior advisor to the 11th Airborne Battalion, 2nd Brigade, Airborne Division, Army of the Republic of Vietnam and the Republic of Vietnam during the period of 14 to 15 April 1972. In the two days preceding the events of 14 to 15 April 1972, the commander of the 11th Airborne Battalion was killed. The battalion command post was destroyed, and Major Duffy was twice wounded but refused to be evacuated. Then on 14 April, Major Duffy directed the defense of fire support base Charlie, which was surrounded by a battalion-sized enemy element. In the morning hours, after a failed effort to establish a landing zone for resupply aircraft, he moved close to the enemy anti-aircraft positions to call in airstrikes. At this time, Major Duffy was again wounded by fragments from a recoilless rifle round and again refused medical evacuation. Shortly thereafter, the enemy began an artillery bombardment on the base and he remained in an exposed position to direct gunships onto enemy positions which eventually silenced the enemy fire. Following the bombardment, Major Duffy assessed the conditions on the base and personally ensured the wounded friendly foreign soldiers were moved to positions of relative safety and the remaining ammunition was appropriately distributed to the remaining defenders. Shortly thereafter, the enemy resumed indirect fire on the base, expending an estimated 300 rounds. Nevertheless, he remained in an exposed position to direct gunship fire on the enemy positions. In the late afternoon hours, the enemy began a ground assault from all sides of the firebase, and Major Duffy moved from position to position to adjust fire, spot targets for artillery observers, and ultimately to direct gunship fire on a friendly position which had been compromised. As the evening wore on, it became clear that the defenders could not withstand the overwhelming enemy forces and he began to organize an evacuation of the fire base under the cover of night. With the goal of of a complete withdrawal, Major Duffy was the last man off base, remaining behind to adjust covering fire from gunships until the last possible moment. When the acting battalion commander was wounded, he assumed command of the evacuation and maintained communication with available air support to direct enemy fire on the enemy. In the early morning hours of 15 April, the enemy ambushed the battalion, inflicting additional casualties and scattering some of the able-bodied soldiers. Major Duffy organized defensive positions during the ambush and ensured the friendly foreign forces could successfully repulse the enemy. After withstanding the ambush, he led the evacuees, many of whom were significantly wounded, to an established evacuation area, despite continually pursued, being pursued by the enemy. Upon reaching the exfiltration site, Major Duffy directed gunship fire on the enemy positions and marked a landing zone for the helicopters. Only after ensuring all of the evacuees were on board did Major Duffy board while also assisting a wounded, fr- friendly foreign soldier and uh, with him. Once on board, he administered aid to a helicopter door gunner who had been wounded during the evacuation. Major Duffy's extraordinary heroism and selflessness above and beyond the call of duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. Signed, Joseph R. Biden, President of the United States.
3: The citations, the presentation of the Medal of Honor in a ceremony last week at the White House. As we continue on the American Veteran Show, we'll take a break. And when we come back, the last remaining member of the Band of Brothers, Easy Company, from World War II, passed this last week. And more as we look back on the life and the service of Woody Williams, the last Medal of Honor recipient who was living from world war ii stay with us this is the american veteran show americanveteranshow.com welcome back to the american veteran show we continue now with Stephen tubbs we continue the american veteran show sadly with a look at two lost heroes very recently We, of course, talked last week a little bit about Woody Williams, the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. More on him in just a moment. But also this past week, another hero left us. The last of the Band of Brothers, Bradford Freeman. He died this past week at 97. He was the last surviving member of the Band of Brothers. The Easy Company veteran parachuted into France on D-Day.
6: It wasn't, but, I don't know, the 18th of December, we loaded up in some trucks and went up to Bastogne. I didn't know nothing about what was happening below, but we was told to hold that town, and that was our objective, and that's what we're doing. It was cold for a southern boy. I'm talking about way down. <laughs> general McCullough was a general and so he gave us a Christmas card, you might say, he told us what we did and all that kind of stuff. And then he told the Germans wanted them to surrender, but he told them nuts. And so he gave, us a, he gave us a paper with all that in it. We was uh, relieved. And we went back towards Bastogne and went off the road in the thicket there and dug in. And by the time we got through digging in enough to sort of hit the ground and instead of knee-deep snow, they told us they had to go and get three, clean out three towns. One of them I never can think of. And the other two was Foy and Noah. So they got that and we was going and we was laying along and going. Didn't think nothing about it because we had been there and we didn't know what we so they just wanted us to go see about that, clean them out. Hadn't even got to the town that we, the little town that we were supposed to get whenever a screaming me would come in and got me in the leg, but it didn't, it didn't get the bone. It got a two, it got a leader but in my right, right there. So I, we went out and, uh, Another boy got hit, too. He was from Erie, Pennsylvania. I seen him one time. We went up Erie, and he was there, so we him. But he, his arm was, he, he had to do that. My leg got all right, and I come back to him in April. I came home, and I was about the only boy who got a job. I have my daddy had corn. He had moved, and uh, we was, he back he was born and raised back where he came. We was renters in four hundred and ten acres, so he couldn't have no nothing. He couldn't get enough help doing no so he moved, come on back and I bought him a place up that is what we call sandy land. We were raised in the prayer in the mood. And uh, so he uh, we helped him, he had a little corn patch, And my other brothers beat me home. So I was the last one. So we got the corn out. I got a job on the road. Uh, just working road work. Driving truck, hauling gravel, driving a cat, ditching. First one thing or another. If I was trying to do something, they always said, I would try until I got it done, or I'd forget it. That's about
3: it. Bradford Freeman, the last surviving member of the World War II Band of Brothers. Rest easy, sir, and rest in peace. And we conclude this segment with more on the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, Herschel Woody Williams. We had some on him last week and more of his words from CBS News. He grew up on a farm in West Virginia during the Great Depression.
7: There were 11 born to my family. Only five of us survived to adulthood.
8: The attack on Pearl Harbor united Americans as never before in history.
2: After Pearl Harbor, he tried to enlist in the Marines, but was rejected as too short. When the Marines started taking horrendous casualties fighting the Japanese across the Pacific, the height limit was eased, and he ended up a Marine. What was your first taste of combat like? Exceedingly scary. In February of 1945, a massive invasion fleet gathered off the Japanese-held island of Iwo Jima.
7: We didn't know that they had 22,000 Japanese on the island. We didn't know that they had miles of tunnel dug
2: out in that volcano. As depicted in the movie Letters from Iwo Jima, the Japanese held their fire until after the Marines had landed and then turned the beach into a slaughterhouse.
7: The beach was just full of everything you can think of. Trucks and tanks, just blowing up. More than 6,000 Marines
2: would die. I just stacked them up,
7: you know, like cordwood.
2: Finally, Marines made it to the top of Mount Suribachi for the most famous flag-raising in American history. Did you know the flag had gone up?
7: No, I did not. I think I had my head buried in the sand.
2: The flag was up,
7: but the battle for Iwo Jima was far from over. There was no protection. We'd run from shell crater to shell crater if we could find one. And finally, we hit this long line and, uh, of pillboxes, reinforced
2: concrete pillboxes. Japanese machine guns inside the pillboxes cut down the advancing Marines, until Williams' commander turned to him. I said,
7: uh, do you think you could do something with the flamethrower? What are
2: you supposed to do with the the flamethrower?
7: Put flame in the pillbox so that you would annihilate everybody within that pillbox.
2: With covering fire from four riflemen, Williams crawled toward the first pillbox with Japanese bullets ricocheting off his flamethrower.
7: I look up on top of this pillbox and I see a little bit of blue smoke rolling out of the top of it. So I crawled up, got up on top of the pillbox, and here's a pipe uh, that's just about the same size as my flamethrower nozzle. So I just stuck it down and let it go. Uh, That was my first pillbox.
2: Williams is credited with taking out seven pillboxes in the course of four hours. That was February 1945.
1: Peace may be restored.
2: When Japan surrendered in September of that year, Williams was on Guam killing time when he suddenly received a summons. You're going to go see the general. And I said, what for? (laughs) Can't be good news.
7: That's what I thought. I'm scared to death, but I'm following orders, you know. So I walk into the tent, walk up to his desk, and he said... uh, You're being ordered back to Washington. I'd never heard of the Medal of Honor.
2: I didn't know such a thing existed. The boy from Quiet Dell, West Virginia, found himself at the White House, being presented the Medal of Honor by President Truman.
7: I never even dreamed of being able to see a president of the United States. And I'm standing shaking hands with him. Now you talk about a scared moment. I
2: was a wreck. I really was. He got over the nerves, but never the responsibility that comes with the medal. Especially when he learned that Corporal Warren Bornholz and Private First Class Charles Fisher, two of the riflemen who had provided covering fire during those four hours of flaming hell, had been killed. Once I learned that,
7: my whole concept of the medal changed. I said, This medal does not belong to me. It belongs to them. So I wear it in their honor, not mine. They sacrificed their lives to make that possible.
2: He worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs for 33 years. Afterwards, he set up the Woody Williams Foundation to support Gold Star families and designed this monument in their honor. This is my way of making sure that our Gold Star family
3: members are not forgotten. CBS's David Martin, again, Woody Williams, rest in peace, sir, and thank you for your service to our great country. We'll wrap up the program coming up next with a look at a hero on the screen, James Arness who played Marshal Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. Did you ever know about his military history? We'll fill you in. Coming up next, this is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
1: This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs.
3: We wrap up this week's edition of the program with a look at a man that, well, so many people of a certain generation obviously remember. If you were a kid when Gunsmoke was on TV for, what, two decades, you certainly knew of Marshal Matt Dillon. If you were an adult back in the day, you knew the actor, James Arness. But did you know about his military history? That's how we wrap up this week's program. We hope you enjoy.
8: Young Jim Orness finally started feeling better about himself. But his attitude about school was set in stone. He wanted to be just about anywhere else.
4: How about taking these cuffs off? I can't do that. It's like a jail in here. There's nothing I can do.
8: He might have played an authority figure when he grew up, but Jim Orness, the teenager, could be a rebellious kid. When the spirit moved him, young Jim would walk out in the middle of a class and go to the nearby rail yard. There he'd hop a freight train for an adventure that would last for days and take him hundreds
4: of miles from home. That was a a very romantic thing. The sound of a train whistle in the middle of the night really stirred you, and I'm sure it did Jim.
8: In the summer of 1941, after his junior year in high school, 18-year-old Jim Orness set off on an even bigger adventure. He took a train to Galveston, Texas, where he boarded a cargo ship bound for the high
4: seas. We went all through the Caribbean, went to Cuba, Panama, (laughs) Colombia, things like that. It was a marvelous uh, experience, you know, I, I loved it. After that trip, I thought, man, I've got to get on this ocean more, you know. But
8: first, there was the matter of graduating from high school, which was hardly automatic for a kid who'd played hooky the way Jim Orness had. Jim got a big break because he was Dr. Peter Arsness's grandson.
9: The principal called him in and said, Now, you have been a good student, and you've missed a lot of classes, but I'm going to graduate you because your grandfather took care of my family during the Depression and never asked for a penny. And she said, do something good with your life. Make your grandfather proud of you.
8: Before long, Jim got an opportunity to take that advice. Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor during Jim's senior year. America's young men were marching off to war. James Ornes would soon be one of them. This adventure would nearly cost him his life. In June 1942, James Ornis was graduated from high school. He immediately headed west to Pierce, Idaho, where he took a job at a logging camp. At age 19, Jim would be a fill-in worker that summer for some older men who had gone off to fight in World War II. Living in Pierce was about as close
4: as a young man could come in the 1940s to being in America's Wild West. That was about as close to Dodge City as you would ever see. There were brawls and fights and all these loggers there, a rough bunch, you know. That was fascinating to see that place because that was just like a frontier town. Young Jim would have
8: loved to stay there permanently, but his mother sent him letter after letter from Minnesota, leaning on him to return home and start college. Jim obeyed and enrolled that fall at Beloit College, a small school in Wisconsin. Mom hoped that Jim would suddenly discover the value of studying. Instead, he found the fraternities and promptly joined one.
9: They didn't study at all. In fact, every night there was a party for some guy going off to the service. And uh, so Jim then was anxious to get drafted. He just wanted to go.
8: Jim, who loved to fly, instantly wanted to be a fighter pilot. But pilots had to have perfect vision, and Jim realized that his came up
4: just a bit short. So he crammed for his recruitment interview, literally. Somebody had told me that if you drink a lot of carrot juice, that this can bring, your, bring you down to 2020, <laughs> And I drank gallons of carrot juice. Of course, it didn't do any good at all. Jim was still determined to get into the service somehow.
8: He even wrote his draft board, hoping the Army would take him. His draft notice arrived within two weeks. He wound up at Camp Wheeler, Georgia, a private in the Army infantry. After basic training, his company had a ticket to Italy. As 1944 began, that was a very dangerous place to be.
4: Of course, the whole thing is terrifying. The whole time you're up there, you expect that you're not going to make it through to the next day. On February 1st, 1944,
8: Jim had been in combat for about two weeks when his commander told him to lead a patrol at a now famous place called Anzio.
4: I happened to be assigned to be a point man for our squad, which means you walk out ahead of the rest of the squad. And, you know, if there's anybody out there, they see
9: you, they start shooting at you first. And he was going through a vineyard. As he moved forward, he could hear some talking in front of him. And before
4: I had a chance to do anything, this machine gun
9: opened up. He had walked right into a machine gun nest. And it hit him in the right leg, splintered. Uh, his 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 bones, uh, very bad. It was the most
4: intense thing I ever went through. <laughs> and I felt, for the grace of God, that I was allowed to get back out of there and come come home alive. The Army shipped him home to a veterans
8: hospital in Clinton, Iowa, where his little brother Peter got to see him for the first time
4: in almost two years. It seems to me that Jim was as cheerful as I remembered him, undoubtedly more, more thoughtful. He was a wounded guy, and he was getting better. But Jim
8: faced a major medical crisis. He developed a bone infection called osteomyelitis, which was costing many soldiers their limbs and even their lives. Fortunately, a new wonder drug called penicillin arrived
4: just in time. Without that, he might very well not have made it at all.
8: Still, the ordeal had done its damage. Jim's wounded right leg had atrophied and become nearly an inch shorter.
9: What that caused uh, in the long run, which they told him, this is going to affect your spine because you're not, you're not level.
4: Then that throws everything else out of balance and gives you um, untold problems with your back and, and everything else. Jim worked hard in
8: rehabilitation to bring the leg as close to normal as possible. He also started thinking about his future. The last thing Jim wanted to do was take his mother's advice
4: and go back to college. He thought his brother Peter had a much better idea. And he said, well, one course you might like. He had taken it and enjoyed it. It was about uh, radio uh, announcing and radio acting and all that kind of thing, see? Well, that sounded like it was kind of fun. It might be. Jim enrolled at a Minneapolis announcing school
8: and soon displayed enough talent to get a job at a local radio station.
4: He could have been a star on radio, actually, because he had that kind of a voice.
8: But then an old friend named Dick Bremerker returned from the war. Bremerker had a Navy buddy from California who convinced him to move to Hollywood so they could try to become movie stars together. Remerker invited Jim to join him for the drive west. It was Christmas time, and Minneapolis was especially
4: cold and snowy. So he said, we can get a ride out there and get to L.A. and It's warm and sunny out there. Right now we could be swimming in the ocean and doing all this stuff. And I said, well, that's for me. Let's go.
3: That from A&E's biography. That wraps up the program. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We hope you join us and for our regular program, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 p.m. Mountain Time, right here on 710-K in U.S. For producer Michael Arpaio, Stefan Tubbs wishing you a great week. And remember our troops.
1: The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show.
0: Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on prize picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepix.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepix.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.